Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 50 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 27th of September, 2021, and this is episode 224. On today's Dispatches podcast, Jamie Fernandez talked to me about his research into British pacifist women during the Great War. Jamie is a doctoral candidate at the University of Seville, and he spoke to me over the interweb from his home in Spain. Jamie, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Uh, Well, that's actually a very good question. So I'm currently a PhD candidate at the University of Seville, and I'm on my fourth uh, year in the program, and I'm doing my research in the field of Anglo-English-American literature. But uh, I started to become interested in the Great War uh, quite before. That was back actually in 2016. I was doing my last year of my English uh, studies degree, and as it is a custom, I had to deliver a dissertation. So I already knew who my advisor was going to be, but uh, I had had, uh, quite doubts about the the theme, the topic. So basically, after discussing it with her, who's actually my my current PhD advisor, we agreed upon doing our research about women in the Great War. And well, as I said before, it was 2016, so it was right within the centenary of the outbreak and the armistice of the war. So there were a lot of publications dealing with the matter and, you know, there was a kind of revival. So we decided to draw this comparison between the experiences of a woman and a man in the Great War, because usually uh, war in general terms has been told from the perspective of men. They were the ones who went to the front, the ones uh, who fought. So usually uh, wars are um, told from the from a male centered perspective. So uh, also there are fewer stereotypes upon women, so they were not um, considered to have experienced uh, bellicose events. So we thought that maybe um, making a comparison between uh, two experiences would prove if these ideas uh, were correct or not. So basically what we uh, did was to draw a comparison between uh, Vera Britton's Testament of Youth and Robert Graves' Goodbye to All That. I know that these uh, two authors are very popular in, in England, but here in, in Spain, uh, they were quite um, unknown, actually. And even though the, the film adaptation of Testament of Youth was published in 2015, um, Testament of Youth was not translated into Spanish until 2019. So back in 2016, for us, it was like uh, something really new here in Spain. So that's why we decided to take these two famous in England uh, authors, like as a representative of, of both sexes, and, and compare them the, their their experiences. And basically, after reading uh, both accounts, I came to the conclusion that there were certain uh, themes or topics which were recurrent in both of them. So, for example, uh, patriotism, then how they uh, become disillusioned with patriotism and the heroism of the propaganda because they experienced the horror of the war and also uh, the loss of beloved ones, uh, even some kind of um, Germano-Francophobia. So there were recurrent themes, of course, from uh, very different perspectives because they were assigned different roles uh, according to their sex. But yeah, they, they both experienced the war. And after doing this, I decided to focus again on my master's dissertation on, on women, in this case, just 
sports in, in women. I studied uh, Enid Bagnall, Vera uh, Britton's poems, Rebecca West, E.M. Delafield, and M.W. Buchanan. I reached uh, a very similar conclusion that they were truly uh, participants in the world, though from different uh, perspectives. And after this, I decided to continue with the society in my, in my PhD, though I would like to focus on, uh, on the more unknown, let's say, authors. And while I was doing some research for gathering some of them to, to make a corpus, I came across with a pacifist author, author, and that's how it all started. Which brings me to my second question. What is your research about for your doctorate? Well, um, in a very uh, summarized sentence, my research deals with uh, British pacifist women in World War One and the activities they performed and values they defended and, of course, uh, the the importance of, of all this. And why is this subject important? Well, this subject is important for several reasons. So the first one, and probably uh, the main one and the most obvious one, is that uh, pacifist women have fallen into oblivion, uh, even within the Great War studies or the feminist uh, revision of the literary canon. So the main cause that has led to this obviation of pacifist women, and actually pacifist in general, is actually linked to an ill interpretation of the term pacifism. So pacifism has usually been mistaken with pacifism. Uh, they are actually both pronounced very similarly, so I don't know if you can hear the difference. And um, so pacifism has usually been assigned to roles of passivity, basically, of uh, mere bystanders. So as a consequence, critics and scholars have tended to focus on women, for example, that broke with the stereotype types in more uh, striking passions, let's say. And um, I must confess also that there were people, of course, pacifists, who thought that being a pacifist meant to uh, to basically not to act against the abuses of others, but there was a minority, and most of pacifists uh, actively pleaded for peace, and they engaged in social change. And actually, the best example that proves this was the uh, first International Congress of Women in The Hague in 1915, where most of the participants uh, were women, and they were aiming for social uh, social changes, uh, which were linked to pacifist attitude as the triggering cause. And uh, I also consider that this subject is important because pacifist women had to face a double exclusion that truly caught my attention. So first of all, because they were women, so they were socially disregarded in, in a lot of fields. Also, because they were against the war. So uh, at, the, at the beginning of the war, there was this initial rush of patriotism and uh, they all everybody wanted to do uh, his or her bit, not like Vera Britton says, but uh, pacifists uh, opposed the war from the very onset of it. And I think this is very clearly seen in the example of the Pankhurst family, where Sylvia was disregarded by her mother and sister, uh, Christabel and Emeline, who were uh, fervent militarists. And however, also Sylvia uh, serves as a very good example of how pacifist women um, displayed an active role during the Great War, as uh, proved by her denunciation of militarism in her paper, uh, The Dreadnought. And uh, well, yeah, overall, uh, these women have been excluded from the from the studies and the feminist revision of the literary canon, as they focused, uh, well, on pacifist women tend to focus on religion, on uh, the sense of motherhood. So they they thought, uh, critics thought that they, they were quite uh, old fashioned, um, the stereotypes and the standards. So basically this uh, double exclusion really 
caught my attention and I decided that it would be a great uh, experience to, to study it and to provide visibility to this collective who had uh, unfairly been stereotyped and neglected. So that leads me on to my next question. What is your methodology in, to approach this subject? Well, uh, taking into account the aforementioned, the first thing that I, I did was a revision of the great work and uh, why it began. Uh, when I started reading about the, the great work and its causes, I, I don't really like to say causes, I would say uh, rather events no, that led to, to its outbreak. Um, I realized that there were numerous alliances and real risks among the, the different European nations, and I was actually a little bit lost. I mean, that back in 2016 when I started my, my degree's dissertation. So I realized that uh, that I had to you know, like trace back the, the the events that led to to its onset. So basically, what I do is to well, this led me to to the to the French Revolution and to the 19th century. And basically, I analyzed the uh, the balance of power in Europe and how it was spreading by the uh, by France uh, France hegemony. And then uh, this helped me to understand the geographical and social changes that were to follow for a century which is actually uh, quite uh, ironic because it's known as the peace century and uh, that ultimately uh, ended in the in the outbreak of World War One. And also, um, I was very interested in studying the 19th century as um, abstract notions such as patriotism or nationalism itself uh, is born in in this um, in this century. And also, um, in the 19th century, um, it is the, the the birth of the pacifist movement itself and uh, also of uh, the women's movement which is very much linked to um, the women I studied so basically um, what I do first is to do this revision of the 19th century and then when this task uh, was done I did a revision again another revision of the term pacifism as I said before it has been usually ill associated to pacifism so as a consequence uh, one of the first things that I needed to do was to uh, prove to clearly show that pacifism is uh, totally far from uh, passive activities. And well, I have to say that I do this from a Western perspective, of course, because pacifism, uh, there are different types of pacifism. It's not the same uh, pacifism here in Europe than, for example, in Asia. So as the authors that I'm dealing with are British, I basically uh, focus on the Western perspective of pacifism. And this led me to, to the Bible and concretely to the New Testament and with a very special emphasis on the passage of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus Christ called the apostles to, to make peace. So basically, pacifism uh, comes from the Latin word pack which means peace and pathetic which means uh, make so basically uh, this already proves that being a pacifist involves the act of making peace so therefore is far from being passive so just the the origins of the world prove that um, the, the stereotypes upon the world and the term and the movement itself um, are are wrong and something very important too is that in when regarding pacifism in, or pacifist attitude let's say in the bible it's that Jesus calls um, the apostles uh, to make peace and when he does this he's not only referring to the 12 apostles but to all his disciples to all christians and this is going to be very important for for pacifism as a as a movement once i do this um i focus on the pacifist movement itself how it was born in england in the 19th century again so uh, i try to link this to the uh to the social unrest that there was experience at the very beginning of the 19th century as a consequence of the 
Apollonic force. And well, actually, this is very important because the, the first peace uh, organization or association in Europe was born in London in 1816. So it was just a year after the Napoleonic Wars ended. We can see that there, it was like a counter reaction or a counter uh, discourse. And uh, yeah, this is basically what I do. And once I finish doing this revision and the, the, the explanation of the pacifist movement, always linked to the women's movement, I, I draw upon some critical support and theoretical framework. I draw upon peace studies, uh, feminism, the ethical turn, and also the non-violence studies which are acting now in a popular way. And when, once I, I use this uh, critical support, I try to like uh, justify what I said before and I give the examples and analyze the, the works of the of the women I've chosen uh, that were actually published in, in the midst of the, the Great War. Which brings me to the next obvious question. Who are the women that you are looking at? And can you give us some, some idea of what their social class is, their sort of occupational background and also their family position? Yeah, um, well, I'm looking at four women and concretely uh, to one work of each uh, of each of them. So the first one is Mabel Sinclair Stobart, and I'm focusing on the, her work, uh, The Flaming Sword, and in, in Serbia and elsewhere. Uh, Stobart was born in a wealthy family in 1862. Her parents were Sir Samuel Baxter Bolton and Sophia Luisa. She had two sisters and two brothers, and she liked a lot of uh, playing uh, tennis and golf. So this proves her social status, not that she was born into a wealthy family. And she's very well known because uh, she was a very popular British uh, suffragist and aid worker. She was not only implicated in aid work in, in the Great War, but also in the Balkan Wars, which is really important for me because she already had some experience uh, dealing with war and however the, the Great War like completely um, changes her perception of war. And uh, she basically became the first woman to, to achieve the rank of major in any national army. She commanded the British women units in World War One. And uh, well, as I said, she was a, a suffragist and she actually ran for the Westminster seat in the London County Council election in 1930 and she was actually the third most voted person with around uh, 1,200 votes. And, uh, well, uh, she was also very interested in social work and improving working class uh, people's lives. And, of course, these things are the ones who ha uh, that have caught the attention of scholars and feminists as uh, Stobart totally breaks with these stereotypes of passivity. Um, and she basically performed uh, activities that are, that are usually associated to, to men. Uh, but it's really important to bear in mind that all her activities um, have a, a, a same core, which is uh, pacifism, her pacifist ideals, which are very much in line with her fragist ideals. So it's very important to to revise this um, this pacifist attitude of uh, Stobart to understand um, her her overall motivation. And uh, the other author I study. Um, is Rose Macaulay, which is also very well known. But uh, well, she was an English writer, and she's very well known, especially for uh, her novel *The Towers of Trebizond*. And uh, well, she was born in Rugby, Warwickshire. She was the daughter of George Campbell Macaulay, who was an noted English classical scholar, and indeed he was a professor of English language and literature at the University College of Wales. So again, this proves that uh, Rose Macaulay was born into um, a wealthy family. And uh, well, Macaulay herself was very 
well educated. She actually attended Oxford High School for Girls and read modern history at Somerville College at the Oxford University. And uh, she's very well known um, for critics because of her complex and mystical sense of the divine. And she also had a very complicated relationship. She was in love with a married man. And uh, of course, uh, she's very well known for her androgynous characters in her work. So all these have uh, have been the, the focus of tension of scholars. Uh, however, they tend to obviate the fact that um, even if she had a complex sense of religion, it's um, it's present in her in her work Non-Combatants and Others, which is actually uh, one of the very first anti-war novels ever, which was uh, published in, in 1916. And the, the third author I am researching about is Theodora Wilson Wilson. Uh, she's actually less known than the two others I mentioned before. And um, she was born in Kendall in 1865, and she was the daughter of Isaac Whitwell Wilson, uh, who was a committed member of the Plymouth uh, Brethren, and his wife Anne Baxter, uh, who was the daughter of a Bible publisher, uh, Samuel Baxter. And uh, well, Wilson Wilson was educated at Stramongate, which was the Quaker school in Kendall, and this is very important that she was in a Quakerian uh, context. And well, she uh, she then went to, to to Germany to study music, so she was an artist. And uh, once she returned back to, to England, uh, well, she devoted basically herself to religious activities. Uh, she ran a Sunday school. Uh, she also started a girls' evening home for working girls. And um, once the the Great War uh, break, um, she basically um, became a part of. Well, she became a Quaker. So uh, of course, uh, Quakers are famous because uh, uh, being a pacifist is like uh, something inherent uh, of this uh, of this book. So uh, she she was like basically um, obliged, not obliged, no, but she was determined to fight for for pacifism with uh, without arms. And um, and that's uh, that's uh, very important. She actually uh, published uh, her work, The Last Weapon, in 1916, and it was actually uh, banned because she well, it was censored because she was really um, really critical with the with the government and the, the institutions at the time. And the last author I'm studying about uh, is Mabel Dumer. She was a novelist and dramatist, and she she's actually uh, well known for her children books and illustrations. And uh, she was born in a wealthy family again. Uh, so all these uh, people were were born in wealthy context. And she was the daughter of distinguished surgeon major William White and Selina Taylor Pritchard. And uh, she was educated in London. She entered uh, painter Haverborn Herkimer's art school in 18, uh, 1891, yeah, and, uh, but she left. She left the, the following year because she, she married a socialist liturgist priest who was Percy Dumer. So again, this is important because at the end of the day, we see that our religion is uh, seen present in, in all of these women, so we can like foreshadow something. And um, well, the most relevant thing to mention about her is that, um, at least as far as this research turned, um, is the fact that she was a committed pacifist who died caring for the wounded in Serbia as she caught typhus and she was actually in the same hospital that uh, Stobart one. So in her letters, uh, there are different uh, references to Estobar. So I thought that it was actually very, very curious. So why were these women pacifists or peace activists? Um, what was their motivation for actually taking their sort of anti-war stance? Well, uh, they all had uh, various motives for being pacifists, but there is a common and short one, which I had already uh, foreshadowed, which is religion. So they also in religion um, and their belief 
gives uh, the opposite of war and destruction. So, for example, um, Stober uh, is very clear from just by reading the the title of her of her work, the Flaming Sword in Serbia and elsewhere. So, the Flaming Sword is a uh, is a reference to the Old Testament, to Genesis in particular. And so, we basically uh, by reading the title, we can already guess that she has a Christian background and that she's formalizing it and using it uh, when telling her appearance in the world. And um, Wilson Wilson is as mentioned before Rock Walker. So basically, yeah, uh, being a pacifist is a uh, part of being a walker and uh, it would totally lead to her beliefs and her lifestyle. Um, however, there were different motivations for all these women. So for example, Stober was, as I said, a fervent feminist. She totally breaks with these stereotypes and proves that uh, women can take works usually male-oriented as running a hospital. And uh, Macaulay was an artist. So Macaulay uh, thought that as an artist, uh, her main mission in life was to create, not to destroy. So war was against um, her her notions and beliefs of uh, creating and not destruction. So this is very well represented in, in uh, her, her novel, Non-Combatants and Others, where the main protagonist, Ali, resembles Macaulay's own persona. And indeed, it's in, it is in Christianity where she finds an alternative route to escape from the destruction and horror of the world, and where she can reconcile her patriotic feelings because all these women had a uh, patriotic feelings and sentiments but of course they were from a very different uh uh, standpoint and um, a very similar situation is found in Mabel Dumer. Uh, she was also a fervent Christian and she was also an artist. So um, she knows that she needs to do something in the world. She wants to participate, but not um, supporting the war, but against the war. So she basically um, believes that by helping people, uh, taking care of the wounded, uh, she's going to help those who are suffering. So basically, as uh, also another motivation that we find sober. But yeah. Uh, I think this is very important because uh, pacifist people in general usually have been um, thought not to be patriotic, but being patriotic doesn't always mean to support the war, but they, they supported uh, what Britain represented, but from a different uh, perspective. And these are some of the, the main motivations, let's say, that I found in these women. Now, were these women activists? Uh, did they organise and agitate for the end of the war, or did they carry out other sort of um, anti-war or pro-peace activities? Um, um, well, they were activists, but um, I think that maybe not in the in the way that most of us understand. So as I mentioned before, all these women were um, engaged in war work, but with a very um, concrete idea, which was to mitigate the effects of the war. So um, as they were all engaged, they didn't really have the time to, to go out to the streets and plead for the ceasefire, but rather they pleaded for it um, through their daily routine and their, their, their works they, they displayed. And uh, well, actually, Dürmer, Mabel Dürmer, had no time at all to agitate because she died in 1915 of typhus. So basically, she the the war uh, began. She went to Serbia and she died there to, a year after. And well, the the one that did have some active participation in strikes and sort of public uh, demonstrations was um, uh, Theodora Wilson Wilson. Our workers were very very active during the Great War, despite the fact that some of them uh, actually enrolled. But in general terms, they uh, they 
really opposed the war and they tried to help uh, everybody who, who didn't want to participate in the event. Uh, it didn't matter if it was uh, based upon religious beliefs or, for example, uh, liberal ideas or whatever. They, they tried to help all those who, who didn't want to take part in it. And, uh, but yet, um, as I mentioned before, the best way uh, for pacifists to be seen was not really by agitating or rather denouncing the, the present state of affairs at the time through their work and experience. And as I said before, Wilson's work was banned and sourced, uh, because of this, because that's what she did. So uh, she didn't actively, like maybe some of them didn't actively went to the streets and uh, make strikes, but um, they, they, of course, um, organized different kind of work to protest about this. And uh, one thing that I would like to say is that censorship was preyed upon pacifism, though not as harsh as it may seem, as the British government thought that by censoring uh, the pacifists, it would attract the, atten that the attention of more people. So um, though there was certain uh, censorship, uh, they were able to uh, publish some uh, papers and all the stuff. But this gave us an idea of how critical the work of Theodore Wilson Wilson was and why it was, uh, was uh, censored. And well, also pacifist meetings uh, were usually boycotted by people who walked past by and they, they truly found difficulties expressing their ideals and aims. So um, basically it was in the field of international relations where uh, pacifist women and pacifists in general worked most and where their activity is uh, greatly seen. And again, uh, the best example that proves this is the, the first national Congo women in, in the Hague in 19... So what impact did these women and their activities have during the war? Um, well, I consider that the impact impact they had during the war, uh, especially in the first year, was not very big. I mean, um, the works that I deal with uh, were published in 1916. So we have to take into account the uh, the, the moment, you know, the, the, the stage in which we are in the in the Great War. So of course, the overall attitude towards the conflict had already changed a little bit. Uh, it was not the same as the early stages of war when enthusiasm and patriotism played a prominent role, um, especially taking into account that the military Service Act passed into law in January 1916, and that conscription became compulsory. But people um, still, um, still uh, were very participate and they were um, willing to, to engage in the war, but some were realizing that uh, the war was not the glorious event that uh, was preserved the British uh, values around the, the world, the globe, and uh, that it was not going to be over uh, before Christmas, of course. And um, this is very well proved by, uh, by Vera Britain's uh, instance is very famous uh, as you truly say has patriotism worn very very threadbare however uh pacifists gained visibility and popularity after the armistice because um new international relations were being developed and peace up by the different countries and nations that probably in the event so as to avoid a conflict of uh, that magnitude again so uh, of course we know that uh this aim failed because uh, we had the World War II, uh, which basically diminished the good image pacifists finally had earned, and which is another of the reasons why nowadays pacifists and pacifism have uh, fallen into oblivion. But uh, going back to World War I, um, we cannot underestimate the importance and the work of associations of our organizations, such as the Fellowship of Reconciliation or the most active organizers of dissent and opposition, who were uh, the No Conscription Fellowship or the National Council Against Conscription, but um, again, it was not uh, until the end of the war that the activity or the impact of uh, these uh, people, concrete women in this case, um, was really
really, really seen. My penultimate question is, what do you think the legacies of these four women are today? Well, um, I consider that their legacy, uh, though may not be as tangible as others, is extremely important and actually is still lingers nowadays. So pacifism is, after all, the precursor of uh, peace studies and non-violence studies, which are getting on a popular wave lately, and especially with all the events that are occurring around the world. Also, um, the activity of these pacifists is seen um, nowadays from uh, very different perspectives, because we, we had some time to think about uh, what happened, and now we are aware of the of the problems and the, the, the consequences of uh, World War One. So they are not uh, um, as badly seen as they, they were at the time. And uh, well, um, talking about non-violence studies who are very, very popular nowadays, I would like, I would like to say that uh, last year, American philosopher and activist uh, Judith Butler published a book titled The Force of Nonviolence, where she basically notes that an ethic of nonviolence must be uh, connected to a broader political struggle for social equality. So she also argues that uh, non-violence is often misunderstood as passive practice that emanates from a calm region of the soul or as an individualist ethical relation to forms of power. But um, in fact, non-violence is an ethical position found in the midst of the political field. So this is basically what pacifist people and pacifist women try to explain back in the world. So uh, we are seeing that 100 years after, uh, there are people who are trying to, again, explain the same that uh, these women fought with no arms uh, during the Great War. And again, this is very, very well um, proved uh, by by the first Congress of Women at the Hague, and uh, which basically was uh, yeah, the, the first meeting where women met or trying to have a, a say in the international relations and uh, with uh, pacifism at the forefront. Also, um, pacifism was also the, the what led to the rise of the League of Nations, which was the first worldwide intergovernmental organization whose uh, principal mission was to maintain world peace, which is basically the, the main objectives or, or of non-violence and peace studies nowadays, which is uh, basically establishing arbitration as a means of solving problems instead of, uh, of recurring the bellicose attitude. So I consider that the legacy of these women, um, well, in concrete of the four women I'm, I'm researching about, is uh, very important because uh, even 100 years later, uh, we see that we are still uh, trying to clarify you know, what, what, what pacifism really is and uh, to, to establish uh, some non-violent attitude in our present of affairs. So this is why it's important to acknowledge the work, uh, the works of these women and the ideals that uh, that are manifested in their their different uh, publications. And my final question is: Where can people learn more, and when will you complete your studies? Um, well, uh, I would like to say that uh, the best way of learning more about pacifist women is really by uh, reading their stories and work. So um, unfortunately. There are not big works that are uh primarily focused on the experience of pacifist women, so it is hard to access the experiences of these women. Um, when mentioned in war-related works, they tend to be minimal, but uh, however, um, there are historical events, you know, such as the aforementioned of the uh, Congress uh, in the Hague, that um, that can be accessed easily, uh, even just by the internet. So, for example, if people search for the resolutions that were reached at the Congress, they, they can be uh, 
found in the internet, uh, they are in, even in PDF, um, you will find uh, a list of the women who participated in the event. And of course, um, if you read the, the resolutions, you will realize that uh, pathetism was at the core of the Congress. So this would be, for example, a very good um, starting point to get to know more about the pathetism, how it was truly active, and different women who were engaged in the in this movement, not only from England, but also from the different nations of, of Europe and actually of the world, because uh, there were also American women. And and yeah, I, I think that this is like the, the very first thing to do to get access to a list of women. Also in the uh, Imperial War Museum in London, there are held some uh, letters and documents dealing with these women, which are very, uh, very enriched. And um, well, dealing with my work, I hope that I, that it will be finished uh, by the end of this year, if not a uh, very early stages of 2022. And uh, so basically, once I finish, I hope that it uh, provides another source of, um, of knowledge for people who are interested in pathetic women. Jamie, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>